Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. Ooh, those are strong words, Dapper Dan. Well, I'm Mischievous Marchinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man. But the annuals, in my opinion, and really in factual matters, of course, uh, they don't count. You know, Mark, I was thinking about this. I always give you the last word. (laughs) <laughs> on on these intros, and I, I wonder if that's all ultimately to my uh, to my points discredit. <laughs> well, Dan, you 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 pen the script, so maybe you need to to turn things around next time around. You know, so listen in, folks, for the next episode of the Amazing Spider Talk. <laughs> I I may just I, you know you never know. Although I feel like sometimes I'm bolstering your point in my scripts, which is like <laughs> whose side am I really on? Truly, truly, sir, truly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe, annuals included. Thanks for joining us for this review episode of the all new Amazing Spider Talk. Today on the show, Dan and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 46, Legacy number 847, which was written by Nick Spencer, with pencils by Marcelo Ferreira, inks by Roberto Paggi, colors by David Curiel, letters by VC Joe Caramanga, and a cover by Casanovas. Mark Bagley, we hardly knew ye. This issue was first released on August 12, 2020. What's new? Well, let's just start there, Mark. Uh, I mean, look, I I should probably follow the solicits a little more carefully. I mean, this wasn't really a bait and switch, but boy, was I expecting like uh, like a six issue arc with Mark Bagley. But it turns out he's only doing like three issues in this arc. Right. Which also makes no sense because, you know, anybody who knows who has followed Mark Bagley's career over, you know, over the last we're working on 30 years now, close to or close to it. I mean, the guy is like. I mean, he's the fastest gun in the West, right? I mean, like this guy can draw issue upon issue. He can do a, probably a six part arc in about six weeks. <laughs> well, maybe I'm exaggerating. But the thing is, the guy works fast. And you would think like a story like this, he can probably crank this out in his sleep. So, you know, are we are we just changing things up because is Bagley the fill in is uh, who, who knows? And that's kind of always that seems to be the story with the art when it comes to Amazing Spider-Man over the last year or two. It's who knows, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I have heard rumors that like Nick Spencer is part of kind of the team of choosing the artists and maybe he's taking a more kind of hands on approach and issue by issue requesting to work with certain people. 
I don't know. I mean, this gets back to the idea of like, is consistency a virtue in comics? I mean, some artists are better at handling different tones. You know, I think that that like sins rising prelude. I'm glad they give it to a guy who could handle horror. You know, like I don't feel like Otley could really do horror in that in like quite like that. Not like um, not not that kind of horror. More like monster horror, probably. You know, like give give him a big give him Gog to draw, and, it, and it's beautiful for sure. Yeah. So I I don't know, Mark. I mean, where where do you stand on that kind of idea of like consistency with artists? I mean, is it a problem that we're getting different people all the time, or is it more just kind of like point to like what's going on in editorial that they can't lock a guy down for one story? I certainly grew up in an era. I mean, you know, I started reading Amazing Spider-Man during the Todd McFarlane era. And even though David Michelinie was the writer of Amazing Spider-Man, I remember it for Todd McFarlane and his artwork. And granted, that was kind of the, you know, that's what makes McFarlane a once in a generation talent. But the point I'm trying to make is like, yeah, I mean, like, this is a book that for years and years was known as an artist book, you know, like, whether it was McFarlane or Larson or Bagley or J.R.J.R. or, you know, even even during the, the brand new day in Superior era, I mean, like, you know, those full arcs had great artists kind of working throughout and they kind of s- switched off with the writers. And so this kind of hodgepodge, I, I, I don't totally feel it, Dan. And like, you know, it to kind of dovetail it into the story itself. I mean, you're talking about consistency and like this, this book from issue to issue, I feel like this is a totally different book and that's not a compliment. It's, it's just like we're we're changing tones. We're changing perspectives. One issue, it's kind of a horror comic. The next issue, it's this like artsy, you know, trying to tell a narrative through backwards and forwards and and playing with the with time and perspective like like dan like this this book is all over the map i can't put my finger on what the through line of this whole thing is and like whether it's the art whether it's the storytelling it's a to me it's a mess right now i don't know like i'm just really frustrated with amazing spider-man especially this issue right now yeah, well, well, good thing we're here to talk about this issue. Um, Sorry, I threw you know, it out there. I, I, I'm laying the gauntlet down right away. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, I don't. I think it's. I mean, anybody that opens this up and suddenly goes like, "Wait, wait, we're not getting a follow up on that that overdrive big twist ending," and 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 it's very clearly not being told from Peter's perspective. I mean, we kind of get that a little bit with like like one of the kind of the the narrative framing structures is like following Peter which ultimately is revealed him in a hospital talking to Nora, I believe. Or Carly. Or not Nora, to Carly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, there's a couple things going on in this issue, but I think even more than that, like I kind of wanted to get your feeling on this because for so long we've been trained as a comic audience on these kind of like six issue arcs where, you know, like, and for a long time it was really deconstructed arcs, you know, like six issues to tell what a story you might tell in one issue in like the silver age, you know, in a way I feel two ways about this book. I think I agree with you completely, which is that like, what the heck is the tone? Whose perspective are we coming at this from? We like last issue just praised being inside of Peter Parker's mind. And in this issue, we don't get any internal monologuing that's being expressed a different way through this kind of almost like journalistic approach. And I think, yeah, it's it's all over the map. But then, like, I also am like, am I am I reacting to how I've been trained to read issues? Does he want us reading it one issue at a time? 
I, I, I don't know because I kind of like the singularity of like, I feel like there's something kind of concrete about each of these issues, even if they change and fluctuate constantly. And I, honestly, I think that's more aggravating to me than the kind of narrative joy I get out of like seeing like one structure kind of completed in each issue. But there is something too, like the lost art of like making each issue feel like its own unique thing. To totally jump to another media, I mean, like I I, I think of it in terms of like a a, a music LP and, and you know like you know like obviously like an artist I feel like from album can to album can can kind of change styles and tones and and show off different you know inspirations and and expressions and whatnot and you can you can kind of get into that but like I think of an arc frankly as a singular album and it's like you know like if I'm listening to an album I don't want to hear jazz in one song and heavy metal in the next and I feel like that's what Spencer has been doing I mean I guess that's well I shouldn't say that's what he's been doing this whole time but I feel like if you go back in time to his last big arc on this book which was hunted i think it suffered from the same problem there's just like there's no there's no thematic through line to how he wants to tell his story he's just like throwing a bunch of different stuff at the wall every issue and like trying trying out new tricks and 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 attempts and approaches and and styles and perspectives and like it doesn't even have to be in a compendium. Like I, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. I feel like, I feel like I'm getting taken on this herky jerky ride right now from one issue to the next and trying to figure out what is, what is going on in this arc. Like this is supposed to be this very pivotal arc. That's going to unveil a lot about what we've been building for, for what 40 was this 46, 46 issues now. And it's like, instead we're like, you know, I feel like it's like the Nick Spencer variety hour and I'm just not feeling it, Dan. Well, I always appreciate your music analogies. I think, you know, I, I've praised you in the past for saying Dan Slott's run was like jazz. You're expanding on your uh, metaphors here into the Nick Spencer era. And I I like that. At least Dan uh, Slott was you, consistently jazz, though, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like it's hard to pin this run down because we'll love an issue, you know, and then it goes to a different type of music. I, 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 I think you're really on the money there. To me, it seems like almost more like a kind of like a modern TV show, like Lost or like Watchmen, where episode to episode, the genre changes or the perspective changes. But what may, but those shows are ensembles, right? So like you can do that and you can shift your perspective before a book. And look, you could, you could very well make an argument that Spider-Man is an, uh, an ensemble book, but I think everybody knows that it's at its core. It's not. Right. It, it's a book about Peter, because if it was an ensemble book, then boy, they've been failing at fleshing out the supporting cast for a long time. Like Mary Jane is very much a character seen solely through Peter's perspective, although Nick Spencer's done some good work here and there in, in that regard. But yeah, I think I think you're right. The kind of um, style is a little all over the place. And even though you can start pinning down like a Spencerism, which for me, this framing technique thing is a Spencerism. Like every book is framed in some way or the other en en enough that we praise the last one for not being framed in, in, in any way. Although I guess it was because it's framed by Carly's story, but here it's not just one framing. It's two framings. You know, we, we, we've gone two layers deep into inception and we've got this conflicting news report that Nora is doing and Spider-Man talking and 
it's it's neat, right? It's a neat trick. Like reading this issue, I enjoyed it on its own. Like I think it's a really neat structurally. It you know, there's some interesting updates to the 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 kind of plot, if you will, or the kind of like where this story is going with the Sin Eater. But it's it, it's hard to stay engaged because you're you're you you don't know if they're going to follow up on the thing that you're caring about from issue to issue. Yeah, I, I I think that's what it boils down to for me, Dan. It's like I think that ultimately Spencer, through his own creativity, is doing himself a disservice because I feel like, like you say, that level of disengagement start. It, it's it's so funny that I feel I get what what disengages me from these comics are is essentially. Peter slash Spider-Man's disengagement because that's like it's like you know that's kind of the 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 theme if you will of this issue is like Spider-Man just feels so removed from it I mean he's in it but like that last issue as we talked about you're in his head a lot you're 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 following everything from his lens you're not questioning what's real what's what's being warped by someone else's point of view because it's Spider-Man's point of view and this you you know because he's he feels he feels like a spectator in his own story and it's like i'm i'm spectating spider-man's story i don't want to spectate him spectating you know like that 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 <laughs> takes me out of it I, I mean i feel like you saying disengagement is is hits the nail on the head because i feel that in telling stories this way and kind of changing that focus from issue to issue even if there is things that are creatively artistically well done and well executed it's hard for me to stay engaged and follow it through because I'm like, well, you know, you did something totally different two weeks ago. And then what are you going to do in another two weeks? Like, are we going to get the, the Jonah story? Are we going to get Count Nefaria? I, I, you know what I mean? Like what, what's, what's happening here? And you're not even speaking metaphorically, like literally he's frozen as a statue in the battle after like a moment and can't do anything to stop it. Right. And we kind of already commented on that last issue with the sin eater, which is like, you know, uh, Spider-Man, he's, the Sin Eater outright tells him, I'm not going to hurt you. That's coming later, you know. So, like, it, we know that the stakes aren't about Spider-Man. They're about everybody else, you know. And so that's really hard to kind of get all that engaged in. Although I think there's a little bit of a wrinkle here. Like, I think that the Sin Eater is playing with Spider-Man's kind of, like, guilt and, and his role in society a little bit in ways that we can talk about. It's funny because we would often knock Slot for not being writerly enough, right? And not trying to elevate his work in, in any way and kind of just relying on some oftentimes kind of like, not schlock, but like really kind of pat, like uh, not evolving stories. And when he did writerly stuff, we would praise him because he often knocked it out of the park. Nick Spencer seems too writerly. Like, I want some classic basic Spider-Man stories. Cause when he does that, he does a really good job. And it's like, again, it's somewhere in between is this magic point and both of them only hit it here and there. But I feel like Nick Spencer is working way harder at this and yeah, he could just take a chill pill and I think he'd be better for it. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Sin Eater's plan here. And, and then we can of course talk about, you know, what, what the, what the end game is for Peter. I mean, so it seems that, you know, this, this hell gun or whatever that weapon that he's using, I mean, you know, in addition to making it look like he's actually blowing these people up by shooting them <laughs> and, 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 and <laughs> kill, you know, slaughtering them. But the, he's basically, 
taking away their powers and is instilling this sense of like fear and I mean they're basically becoming who Stan Carter became in the second arc that Peter David wrote back in the 80s like they're kind of becoming like these these hardened criminals are becoming like these sniveling powerless remorseful beings which is I you know a pretty interesting spin on what his powers are I guess Yeah, I think that's really cool. Not only does it kind of call back to that, I like how that information is kind of doled out to us because at first we think like, oh, he's actually doing a good thing. And then you get that interview with Count Nefaria that kind of like twists things around, which is like he would do anything to switch places and be dead essentially because like living is a torment. And I kind of knew where it was going. Like, as soon as I was reading that, I was like, that's just like Stan Carter. And then, you know, Nick Spencer shows an image of Stan Carter and has Spider-Man reflecting on that. And I'm not sure what I'm meant to take away by that. I don't know how you felt, Mark. Like, I was like, am I I supposed to feel like... Because in that story, Spider-Man didn't believe that the Sin Eater had been reformed, right? Everybody else was like, oh, Stan Carter is fine. He can be reintegrated into society. And Spider-Man was the one holdout. And are we supposed to kind of hold that against Spider-Man? Because in this case, he seems right, right? Like, it seems like all of these villains are kind of on a path to committing suicide in a few issues from now. Which, which, by the way, I guess also negates our idea that maybe this is all illusions from Mysterio, because I don't think the illusion would go that far, do you? I mean, it seems a little odd. No, and, and you know, actually, I went back and reread the first Sin Eater arc this week just because I felt like, you know, he's definitely going to make some allusions to it that maybe I missed, you know, because, you know, him, he likes to make really specific references. And the first image of the Sin Eater that appears, he comes out of kind of green smoke like that. So it's not it's not totally unheard of for the characters. So scratch my crazy Mysterio theory, although I'll be the first person to go like, see, I told you if it ends up being that. I mean, there's still kind of like, you know, the Chekhovian gun of Mysterio and Carly Cooper and all that. So, I mean, let's 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 hold out a little bit before completely saying you're wrong, Dan. Um, On that note, though, on that note, though, one of our uh, listeners uh, wrote in to us about this and uh, from Patreon, uh, Robbie, I believe, And he's like, I can't believe you guys missed this reference in the last issue. And he's totally right. When I reread the Sin Eater arc, the way that that, uh, I don't know if you remember, Mark, how that issue, the first issue that story opens, but it's from Jean DeWolf's perspective and you get her whole backstory and like about like, you know, her whole life and her father and what made her want to become a cop. And then it like smash cuts as you turn the page to her being dead. So you're like hearing narration from like her already being dead. It's really interesting. And it's exactly mirrored even in like the panel structure by the the stuff with Carly here. Although Carly doesn't end up dead, it's Overdrive who is dead on the table. That was definitely intentional and I missed it 100%. But uh, And I have no idea what he's doing there unless there's like some... He's going to kill Carly off or something like that. And it's going to be the new person. But I I have no way of saying that was a reference I totally didn't pick up on. So I'm sure there's all kinds of things going on here that we're not immediately seeing. Anyway, you had asked another question about my impression. What was it? My impression on Stan's powers right now or 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 how we're supposed to interpret like what Spider-Man is taking away from this? Because like it, it seems like 
he has this kind of emotional release at the end of the book. And, but I, but I couldn't put my finger on like, are we supposed to feel like Spider-Man was right in that instance? He refers to like his own sins. Like he knows that he messed up or something, but like he ended up being right. Right. Like Stan Carter was still possessed by the sin eater in the second arc of the sin eater. Right. I mean that, that, that whole story is kind of an odd. I mean, I think part of the, part of the reason why it's considered so classic is because it, it really perverts Spider-Man's morality a lot in terms of, you know, what does right actually mean? And, and, I would say, if anything, you know, we kind of saw Spencer go down this road again in that Craven arc. I feel like he likes to play with Peter's code and morality, but not so much like in the like the way Dan Slott did, which was no one dies, but like more like, you know, if, what is my obligation to protect bad people with the Sin Eater doing what he's doing here? It's like, you know, the conundrum, of course, is you know, what is Spider-Man's obligation here to stop him? I mean, you know, it seems like people are celebrating it, but he knows it's wrong. But is it wrong because it's the Sin Eater or is it wrong because he's taking away these people's, you know, ability to, you know, have, what should I call it, over their themselves, authority, uh, 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 agency, thank you, over themselves. <laughs> I, I don't know, Dan. I, I guess I, I guess I'm saying we've kind of seen this 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 trick before from Spencer in terms of like like spinning the, you know, perverting the morality a bit. So I, I'm not sure exactly what the grand idea is supposed to be here outside of, you know, are we just kind of pushing Peter to that edge again in, in terms of defending Defending bad people. <laughs> I'll admit I'm not really that excited to have another kill code story. You know, like uh, that his second, like I guess you would call this like major, a major arc. At least it's being advertised that way. It got a prelude story. So if that's a qualify, and it seems to be a qualifier for Spider-Man events now, I would hope that this is doesn't boil down to another will he, won't he kill you know, as part of his kill code, especially on the back of Dan Slott for another writer to make that like the core theme he wants to play with in Spidey comics. I just think it, it really is a limited well for this character to surface that again. But if you are doing the Sin Eater, I guess it makes some sense, you know, that being that one of the core beats of the original story is that like he tried to kill the Sin Eater and Daredevil stopped him. But like, it seems like the shoe is on the other foot this time because society kind of wants the Sin Eater to stay alive and do what he's doing. So will Spider-Man have to stop because only like, will only Spider-Man see the end picture of this, that these villains are actually being treated perhaps even worse than, than death. They're having to live with their sins. I don't know. I, I That's the thing. I, I can't put my finger on exactly what it's trying to say at this point. Again, it's another spin on the idea of Spider-Man as the judge, jury, and executioner here, except this time it's not, like you said, it's not so much in stopping the Sin Eater, or, or I shouldn't say it's not in stopping the Sin Eater, but it's like in, in protecting, you know, if society has deemed it okay, who is Spider-Man to say otherwise? You know, like, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, like you said, it's we we we've we've seen this before. We've seen this before from Spencer. We've seen this before from Slot. I I feel that there are other stories we can tell about Peter and his and 
his personality and his morals that are are far more interesting. But I guess we're gonna we're gonna beat this one down a, a few more uh, times before people move on from it. It's it seems to be kind of all the rage over the last decade or so. So let's let's keep going with it. I guess. <laughs> what do you think about the Lethal Legion themselves? I mean, they're kind of an odd choice, but I thought they did a good job of kind of setting these guys up. And if you're gonna have anybody lose their powers, I don't think anybody's gonna be like crying over the, the lethal legion getting taken out yeah for sure i mean it's kind of like you know we need a name but it can't be that big of a name <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> it's 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 an interesting thing i mean count nefari actually is kind of fun and kind of seeing him get reduced to the sniveling coward it was a bit of a shock but i'm actually kind of curious and I, if if i'm jumping too far ahead here i apologize but like you know, why is why is Overdrive the outlier here? Do you have any theories on that? Because they're basically saying like all these other characters have recovered, but Overdrive is kind of still in the ICU and hanging by a thread right now, even though we saw him at the end of the last issue kind of shock himself alive again. Ignoring the kind of like weirdness that we're getting the same cliffhanger two issues in a row, which I find kind of annoying, especially having him kind of relapse into this coma off panel i don't really have any theories about it yet at this point i mean because they do kind of do the legwork to establish that even though overdrive was like in the wrong place in the wrong time he wasn't certainly malicious in terms of the crimes that were perpetrated like he knew they were wrong and maybe because the sin eater attacked him as someone who made a heinous sin and you know use this gun on him but like because he's not a true sinner that's why it's like he's having this adverse reaction to it instead of the others who are like clear-cut sinners you know what i mean does that make sense yeah i think that would probably be the closest guess that i would have to it too is there some kind of moral gray there he like apologized you know although he ran away so he didn't really want to truly face up to his actions but yeah I could see Spencer pulling like the sins past thing is like a, it could be like I I don't know if you ever read the war of jokes and riddles, the Batman story that ended up being all about kite man. No, um, I, I, I could see Spencer pulling like this story is an overdrive redemption arc. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I hope it's not that, although that could be good if you pull it off. Well, yeah, there's something there. I don't know what it is. I'm mostly kind of just confused because I'm like of how it was handled. Uh, it's just kind of strange. I'm like, oh, I was waiting to see what he would be like back, but now he's back in a coma? Uh, okay, moving on. Overdrive, uh, back in the coma. <laughs> I'm waiting for him to trick out that hospital bed and drive it out of there, you know? Okay, we're talking about other kind of weird things in this issue. Can we talk about Norman Osborn yeah, um, yeah. showing up at Ravencroft? Now, I'm going to assume, Mark, that you're not reading Ravencroft. I, I am not. So that's a, as what is that like a mini series right now or what's going on with that? Out of the pages of Absolute Carnage, there was like a couple of one shot Ravencroft issues, but they all kind of connected together and follow different characters as like Reed Richards and like Misty Knight and uh, John Jameson explored the ruins of Ravencroft, which were kind of destroyed during Absolute Carnage. So Ravencroft has been like rebuilt as this like high tech facility, kind of like what like the most hand wavy thing ever. Uh, Norman Osborn is put in charge because he got a clean bill of health off panel and Fisk wanted him in charge. Now, OK, I got some I got some real questions about this. 
Ravencroft is in Westchester County, which isn't in New York City. Yeah, so Kingston has no jurisdiction whatsoever. I mean, you know. Right. He's the mayor, not the governor. So I don't really know how that works. I guess the mayor now has pull in Westchester County. Does that mean that Fisk gets to control the X-Men now? I mean, like, what? look, I hate to bash on editorial. I mean, I don't because I do it all the time. And, but I feel like it's cheap. It's cheap. But like, if there was ever a moment that called for a like, go check out this series or whatever, it's this because what kind of whiplash are you getting off the having just read Absolute Carnage, where he's a patient at Ravencroft, and now here they're like hand waving it away, and he's basically like a babbling vegetable too, isn't he? I mean, you know, like he's he's still more or less like got Cletus Cassidy's brain inside of him, and he's a, he's a, he's basically an idiot at this point, isn't he? I mean, like, so where, where he seems to be, so does he know Spider-Man's identity again? Like, what's going on? I honestly don't know. I don't think so, but I, uh, yeah. So, see, I didn't even know about Raven, Ravencroft. So, like, that's that's a whole other level of, like, what? But, like, I, I texted you after reading this issue, kind of like this, this, you know, I was asking, are there editors? And, like, I was thinking more in terms of, like, whose idea was it to, like, and now here's Norman Osborn, you know what I mean? Like, 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 cause that's just what this story needs right now is Norman Osborn. And he seems normal with, without any, any explanation. And it's just like, wait, what? Like, like, you know, like we're, we're, we're already trying to follow all these moving pieces with, with Stan Carter and the lethal legion and Nora Winters and Carly Cooper and overdrive. And now like here comes Spider-Man's arch nemesis to just kind of casually walk in and be like, I'm in charge of the super prison. And you're like, what? It just like, like, like there needs to be a filter and, 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 and to, and to trim this down, this shouldn't all just be in one issue. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little, a little sensitive to how much we want to jam back into an issue. I know we got called out for that once that, you know, I should never be criticized for telling too much story. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like at the same time, it's like, did no one in the Marvel universe remember siege, you know, like does no one remember? Like, I mean, that's the thing with Norman Osborn. It's like, they need to have better ways of hand waving that people don't remember Norman Osborn. Like, let him be a fugitive. Like, you know, let him. But my, you know, in my mind, one, this is the status quo, I guess. And two, they got to set him up for issue fifty because God knows issue fifties have to be either him or Otto fighting Spider Man. So, because that book is going to sell, and we know that issue fifty is a Green Goblin story. So we're we're headed back down that path. I felt like issue 800 was like enough Green Goblin, Red Goblin for me for a long time. Yeah, I but, thought I thought we were done with with Osborne and the Goblin for you know. I mean, outside of his his cameo and Absolute Carnage, I thought we were done with him for for many many years to come. But alas, people demanded it. I guess I I don't know who those people are, but they're demanding it, Dan, and thus we must we must endure it. <laughs> So, so while we're on the topic of Ravencroft, we finally realized what the hell that like door was that we got teased at the end of that one issue. And here it is. It's this like vault like thing with a hole in the window. And they suggest that there's some kind of like a recent arrival that reporters shouldn't know about any thoughts. Like what, like what kind of a villain would necessitate that would be un- in capture right now and taken to a mental institution like Ravencroft. Like, does that ring any bells for you? 
I mean, is it Carnage again? I, I mean, like, I mean, who could it be? I don't know. I mean, like, because like, where's where's Otto right now? Well, I guess Otto's back in his own body, right? That was how that series ended. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It seems like six years ago now. Your guess is as good as mine, Dan. I mean, do you have a guess? The the only guess I, I was going to say Otto because if only because who else would require that kind of like you know a, detail. a, a strong door yeah yeah. A, yeah and detail like who else could you hype up like that you know like I don't think it's the Juggernaut you know like what, what other like you know maybe the Rhino like you know but but that would be weird because like that's a little more complicated than just to handle in that kind of one note way he's kind of like in that anti hero mode. Right now, and he there's no kind of like mental illness associated with the rhino, as far as as far as I know. So my my secondary thought after Otto was, what if you know this is where Norman takes himself when he reverts to goblin mode, and maybe we're back into a, an era where he has a clean bill of health when he's Norman, but he knows to lock himself away as the Green Goblin, and like that's where he's going to be. You know, when, when he's kind of insane, that's the most major villain associated with mental health that I can think of in the Spider-Man world. But that would be weird to describe it as an acquisition when Norman Osborn is standing right next to you. So uh, it's, it's probably a stupid guess. Anyway, that was that was where my mind went. No, no, that's a, that's a, that's certainly a, a, a good chance here. Do we want to talk a little bit more about Nora, too, and kind of her her ultimate end or untimely end, if you will? Sure. I mean, a couple things about that. Her first, I liked her kind of interact. Like I felt like it was weird to include in this book, but ultimately I liked her interaction with Norman, like kind of referencing back to their shared history from that, like uh, Norman Osborn miniseries from ages ago. Yeah. Which is a fun book. And I, you know, and something I remember fondly and I, you know, and why I like Nora as a character, but yeah, at the end here, she goes back to her car and She's about to reveal something to uh, Jonah to publish in, you know, their new thing. And she said, you're really going to like the ending. My takeaway was that she knew something that we didn't know by the way she was saying that. Right. Like, cause I didn't feel like there was like a major like ending that she discovered that would be salacious out of going to this hospital. I think maybe she knew something like that was my read. And then, of course, like uh, the Sin Eater is in the back of her car, like any good slasher villain. And we get a blam from outside the car. So, Mark, uh, are we going to typical superhero rules, which is no one's dead till you see a body? Yeah, there is no body. There is no corpse. So, you know, especially on a cliffhanger. Yeah, especially and especially with because we saw this with Betty Brant. In, in the original Sin Eater arc, right? I mean, like, it looked like she was dead meat, and then it was like, nope, so I just shot the chair. <laughs> yeah, I, I figure this is an intentional reference to that. I also think that uh, Nora Winters is, like, when she says you're not going to like the end, to me that might have been kind of a cheeky way of, like, saying that she's kind of in on something. And to my mind, she kind of knew, at least I could see them resolving this way, that she knew that someone was tailing her, and she was prepared and the blam could be her own gun in self-defense. You know what I mean? Like, uh, we don't see who actually shoots. Maybe she shot the Sin Eater. True. I mean, all, all I can say on top, like as a cherry on top of all that too is, and, and maybe, you know, shame on me for trying to kind of psychoanalyze the creator here, but I feel like, 
you know, Nick Spencer has made it abundantly clear in both how he's written and even in, I think in some interviews he's given that he he likes Nora Winters as a character. So I don't feel like this is a way he would write her out of the book. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like he he wants Nora to be part of his story. He he likes using her. I think that's because am I, am I off in that? I feel like he's made it pretty clear, even just how he writes that he 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 likes her as a character. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's something like more clever going on here, which is always the case on these kind of cliffhanger endings where someone gets killed, so to speak. I'm kind of interested to see how that table gets turned. Although in that preceding, the second to last image, she looks very shocked that the Sin Eater is in the car with her. So I'm probably way, way off. Maybe there's someone in the trunk <laughs> the sin eater. It's Norman Osborne's third personality, Dan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although, like you know, apply the rules of the sin eater shotgun to Noah Win- Nora Winters. What does it look like for her to be absolved of her sins? Right. Like, what, 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 what can we lay at Nora Winters' feet that she was kind of like a bad journalist and and was in bed with one of the goblins at, at some point? I, I don't know what that would mean for her to be subjected to the treatment of these supervillains who have deaths at their hands. Well, do you want to you want to give this thing a grade, Dan, or is there anything else you want to talk on? No, I, I think that's kind of it for me. I, I saw a lot of people in our Slack kind of like ragging on this issue and saying like, you know, way to kill momentum dead. I think there's some mis- there's some bad choices in this issue in regards to like how you set your framing device and perspective and carry it forward. But there are enough interesting wrinkles here that carry the story forward that I want to know more. So I think for me, this is like a like a B minus. I was thinking between that, but I, I'm going to I'm just going to go a notch lower and say C plus, I, I, you know, which is not a terrible grade. I'm just like because it's not a terrible book. But like, yeah, I, I, I feel like we gave what we both gave the last book, what a B plus. So and, and and for me, this is a full letter grade below it. I, I just feel like, yeah, I mean, not that momentum is killed, but it certainly shifts momentum. And, you know, like, I don't know, to me, the book sings when the book is told through the ways it was told in issue 45. To me, this is more experimental. It's the bathroom number if I'm at the concert. So let's get back to the hits, uh, Nick. OK, let's, uh, <laughs> there I go. More music analogies. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like if, if this issue, I was prepared to give it an A if it continued the last issue. Right. Because like I feel like I could have very given, easily given that last issue an A, A minus like w- without even a, like a think about it. But I was I was hesitant. And this makes me feel like my hesitancy was justified. And that's not a good feeling to feel in the second issue of a, of an arc here. And yeah, I don't know. I just stop working so hard, Nick. Yeah. I mean, you know, Nick, you do good work, but like, yeah, let's just like keep it simple. Well, Mark, why don't you take us home? Absolutely. Well, it is, of course, that time, which is time for all the good things like our show to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. As always, this episode was edited by Rick Coach with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friend, Sal Buscema, and Ray Sumzer. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. 
And this episode, like all of our review episodes, was originally released on Patreon as a live stream hangout with us back when the comic was first released. So if you'd like to help support our show's continue, continued existence and these reviews while joining us on the live stream and getting these reviews weeks ahead of time, why not head on over to our Patreon and sign up and join us? So, Dan, what else we got? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, we're still kind of on break at the current moment, and I'm uh, looking forward to kind of seeing where our journey takes us. But uh, it's been fun to talk about this issue with you, Mark. So, you know, heading out of here until Norman Osborne and Nora Winters get a daytime talk show together. What is our credo? Wow, that would be quite the show, Dan. Our credo is, of course, with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.